I declared the Sunday closest to uh, the, the, the anniversary of the Roe vs. Wade decision um, as, as Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And he did so as a statement against what the Supreme Court had done. He was very fiercely pro-life as a president, um, and he did so as a reminder to us as a nation and especially as God's people to continue to fight against abortion both by our vote and also by our action. Um, I did a little reading this week uh, regarding abortion and the, the, just the sheer size of what has taken place, and this is what I found. I found that um, in our nation since Roe vs. Wade, there have been at least 59 million abortions take place. 59 million since 1973. And just to kind of get our heads around the size of what that number is and the sheer quantity of people that are not here today because of that. Let me just, let me help you see this. Um, it's, that's more deaths than, than, than were lost in all of America's wars from the Revolutionary War to today. That's more than that. And it's also more than this. If you were to take this, our states and if you were to add them up, uh, the populations of Wyoming, Vermont, Alaska, North Dakota, South Dakota, Delaware, Montana, Rhode Island, Maine, New Hampshire, Hawaii, Idaho, West Virginia, Nebraska, New Mexico, Kansas, Mississippi, Nevada, Arkansas, Utah, Iowa, Connecticut, Oklahoma, Oregon, Kentucky, and Tennessee. That's 27 states. More abortions than the populations of those states combined today. The horror of that number ought to make us sick to think that we live in such a nation where that takes place. And you begin to think about the fact that here are these people that should be here. And many of these, if you think about the fact that this began in 1973, would be my age and even older. I'm 37. And so these people, if they were born in 73, you do the math. And the contribution that they could be making to our nation. I mean, who knows? There could have been the person who could have cured cancer in those numbers. Who knows what could have been accomplished. But here we, we think about the, the tragedy of abortion. And so today I want us to think about what it means to be pro-life. But I want us to think bigger than just the one issue of abortion. You know, I, I, I have preached on this before and I firmly believe that um, that that. The sanctity of human life issue for us has to be bigger than just one issue. That instead, that, that we should be whole life pro-life, I think is the best way to, to say it. That we should see the God-given value in every single life from the moment of conception until the moment of natural death. From the moment that a life is conceived in the womb until the moment that that life steps out of this life into the next life. That we as believers ought to care and be concerned and have compassion for every single soul. I think we can find that example in Scripture. I mean, if you want to go back to the Old Testament, for instance, we could go to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17, which says where, where God commands us that we should learn to do good, to seek justice, to correct oppression, to bring justice to the fatherless, and to plead the widow's cause. And so he, he gives us here that idea of correcting oppression. And if abortion is an oppression, what is it? 
If modern day slavery isn't oppression, what is it? All the way there, and he even says to, to, to care for the fatherless all the way to the widow. And so in Isaiah, God is giving us that idea of the young to the old. And if we want to go New Testament, we could go to James chapter 1, verse 27. It's probably the most memorable verse on the topic where James, the brother of Jesus, writes this. He says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained for the world. And so there is that idea there of the orphan and the widow and to go to them in their affliction. Even that idea that we are to get dirty in the process of getting down on our knees and serving these people from the youngest all the way to the oldest. But as I was thinking and praying through this week, I got to thinking too about what did Jesus do? What did Jesus say? I did a little study through Scripture this week of Jesus' ministry and how that impacted people from young to old. And I immediately thought of what Jesus had to say regarding children. You probably know this passage. It'll be on the screen. Matthew chapter 19, verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me. And do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And so his disciples saw these kids as a nuisance. Oh, our Savior, his time is too valuable. We can't, oh, we can't let these little kids, they're just going to be a bother to him. We need to keep them away. But no, Jesus said, no, let the children come unto me. He cared for the youngest. That even though the world might see them as a nuisance, as a pain, as a cost, as an expense, Jesus said, no, let the little children come unto me. But it wasn't just what Jesus said, it was also what Jesus did. Let's take, for instance, Jesus' healing ministry, the miracles that he did in healing. If you were to, to sit down and read through the Gospels and think about the healings that Jesus performed, you would find that Jesus healed across the board. That over the course of his three years in the ministry um, of his earthly time here on earth, he demonstrated compassion and care and love for men, for women, for children of just about every age, of just about every social class, from, from beggars, from Jewish beggars to the Gentile children of the wealthy. I mean, you're talking about every point in the spectrum Jesus cared. Every single individual across the spectrum Jesus cared. His compassion knew no age restriction. It knew no gender restriction. It knew no race restriction. It knew no social class restriction. It knew no health restriction. There was never someone who Jesus said, no, they're too far gone. No, they're, they're, they're too old and, and they're too stricken with disease. They're, they're too far gone. No, that, child, that, that child's not even, no, no, it's too far gone. No, there was never a point in which Jesus said that. And so if we are called to imitate Christ in his love, then aren't we called to imitate the never-ending reach of his love? Yes, we are. The early church got this. I've been reading a lot through history lately. 
I don't know why, but I've just gotten on this history kick, and I've been reading this book that if you're, if you're interested in church history, it's a book called Church History in Plain Language, and that's exactly what it is. It's church history in plain language, and it's a great book. And, uh, and I got to reading especially through this. And, and in those very early days of the church, in the time of the book of Acts, and then right immediately after the book of Acts, you probably know that the church found themselves at odds with the Roman Empire at multiple points. They, they did not fit in. They were, they, were not, not, they were not the norm. And so their beliefs clashed with the Romans over and over and over again. And one particular point had to do with the care of children. You see, the Romans in their, in their empire had long allowed the practice of infanticide. We, 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 you know, we, we suffer with the idea of abortion in our nation, which we should. We should be broken over that. But they went even farther and they would allow parents to discard of their infants for any reason whatsoever. The Romans said that was perfectly fine. A child could be born, and a parent could say, for instance, oh, this child was born with birth defects. I don't want it. I've got too many kids. I don't want it. This child looks like it might be weak. I don't want it. I was, I was wanting a boy. This is a girl. On the discard of it. And so the Romans were perfectly fine. These children were just simply possessions and they could, they could be tossed out, literally tossed out. The children would be taken and they would be left outside in the elements to die. And they would either die or they would be picked up by slave traders until the church came along. And Christians began to pull together and raise resources and these Christians would begin to take these children into their homes. They would roam the streets, find these children, and, and adopt them. They would take them into their homes and raise them as their own, at their own expense, at their own cost, in their sacrificing of their own good. And do you know that the Christian church single-handedly ended the practice of infanticide in the Roman Empire? That it was because of what the Christian church did that the Romans eventually began to change their laws. Because the church had that kind of impact. Now think about this. Think about how small... The church was in that day and age compared to the size of the Roman Empire. You're talking about a very small percentage of the people in that empire. But yet consider the impact that they had. Now fast forward to today. What percentage of our nation are believers in Christ? Maybe half. Maybe more. And so doesn't it... Doesn't it stand a reason that we ought to have an even greater impact in our nation. An even greater impact than we currently do in our nation for this call. We as a church have to be the hands and feet of Christ, especially when it comes to caring for the most vulnerable in our society. Because Jesus did it, and also because He commanded it. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. You probably know this passage. You've probably heard it and could probably quote a good chunk of it. But I want us to see what Jesus, how Jesus describes this. Matthew 25, verse 31. And we're going to read down through verse 46. Just waiting to hear the pages stop rustling. So I like that noise. You know, I, I talk to our teenagers a lot about. You know, I, I'm all about phones and iPads and stuff, but I, I'm still a, I'm still a paper Bible person. Um, I can't get distracted with a paper Bible. 
you know. And so, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Now remember, in Scripture, the right always seems to be God's side, right? Jesus was placed on the right hand of the Father. And so you see this idea already developing. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also say, answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will say, answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so Jesus separates the people into the sheep and the goats, the right hand and the left hand. And what is the thing that seems to divide? Their actions toward the hurting. Now, is that what saves us? I mean, do we save ourselves by good works, by doing all these kinds of things? Absolutely not. The Bible clearly teaches that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. But it seems like Jesus is describing here the actions of a changed heart. In a sense, he is saying that this is a sign of salvation, that those who are believers will naturally do these things because their hearts have been so changed that they will have the eyes of Christ and the heart of Christ, and they will reach out to the hurting. And then in turn, those whose hearts have not been changed won't demonstrate these things. And so if we are the people of Christ then let's love the hurting. Let's fight to end abortion. Let's fight to provide godly homes for every single orphan. Let's sacrifice of our own wealth to care for the poor. Let's help to mend the brokenhearted. Let's care for the widow in her distress. Let's give every ounce of our being to helping those who can't help themselves and can never do a thing to repay us because it's not about being repaid. It's about pouring ourselves out for the good and the blessing of others. Now this morning I tried to think and think how to share some stories about 
ways that we see this going on. And as I prayed through this, one name came to my mind, and his name was Jay Woody. Uh, some of you might know Jay. Um, the, he and his wife, Amy, uh, were members here, and then they moved away to Florida, and then they've come back and uh, are attending another church. But the reason why I thought about them is um, through the years, uh, Jay and Amy, God has called them into foster care ministry. And so I've asked Jay to come and to share just a brief word about how God is using his family to minister to these kids who are hurting and, and especially to share with us how he's seen God act and move uh, through this time. So Jay, come on up and share with us. You guys hear me okay? All right. Normally I don't even need a microphone, but I wanted to make sure. My name is Jay. Uh, I am going to read from this today, and I will tell you why. Uh, if you cut me loose, I will be up here 45 minutes later, and Jeff will be pointing at his watch, and you guys will never get out of here. So I literally write down everything I'm going to do, and I read it so that I know I'm going to be about eight and a half minutes so that I don't keep you guys here all day. Uh, my wife and I are foster parents here in West Tennessee, which is every county in West Tennessee that you can think of except for Shelby County. Shelby County is its own little beast, and we want it to remain its own little beast because it is a tough, tough place. But uh, that is every other county. So when I say I'm in Fayette County, I do get kids from Fayette County, but I do also get kids from even as far away as Jackson. It's, it's all of West Tennessee, basically. Um, kind of, I guess, Nashville over. So um, if you want to talk to us, though, uh, I will tell you after this talk, you may say, I don't ever want to talk to you about foster care again. But if you do want to talk to us, Amy and I would be more than happy to go out to eat with you guys, come over to your house and play cards, whatever you want to do, and we'll talk to you and tell you about it. Uh, if you want to invite us back to a Sunday school class, I'd love to have 45 minutes to talk about this and answer all your questions. Uh, as a church, uh, there's a church in Little Rock that sent 20 couples off to become foster parents, and they called the county and they said, that's it for foster care. From now on, every time you have a need, you call the church and we'll just take every foster kid you have. And they took every kid in Little Rock, and they still do to this day. So if you're interested in that, more than happy to come back and tell you how to do that as well. Um, I will tell you, I will try and talk you out of it. Uh, it is a tough, it is a messy, messy ministry. And so that's what I'm going to share a little bit about, and uh, we'll just, we'll go from there. I'm going to start the timer, though, so in addition to reading, I also have a timer as well. So, um, someone asked me what it's like one time to be a foster parent. I told them that every few weeks you grab a grenade, and you pull the pin, and you throw it into your house. And sometimes it is a happy, appreciative grenade that goes off. And there are unicorns and glitter and rainbow and flowers and love and happiness. And sometimes it is an angry little grenade that goes off in your house. And there is bedwetting and tantrums and yelling and violence and cussing and all of that kind of stuff. Um, you never know until you pull the pin. Um, and by then it's in your house. And so you got to kind of figure out how you're going to get through this. So you may say, why would you do this? And that is exactly what Jeff asked me to discuss today. Uh, Amy is not here today. Amy is not a public speaker either. Uh, when she gets here at the 11 o'clock service, if you see her, she is much more beautiful than me and much more fun to talk to. So if you talk to one of us afterwards, please find her, but uh, she'll be here at the 11 o'clock service. So I asked Amy, I said, let me do your part first. And uh, she's a very blunt person. So I asked Amy, I said, hey, why did we get into this? And she said, because we can't have kids. And I said, you care to elaborate any on that or is that gonna be pretty much your whole speech? And uh, she said, I said, why this over adoption? Why do we go foster kids over adoption? And she said, you know, I prayed about it. We looked into adoption, and I just never got a good, calm feeling about it. And I did when I thought of fostering. 
Then when I brought it up to you, you were more excited than you seemed when we discussed adoption. So I thought, let's go take the classes and let's see what we think. And God just made it where the more I learned about this, the more peace I felt, and the more I thought this is what God wants us to do to help kids that are really struggling. She's a wise woman, a few words, so I listen when she speaks. Um, I asked her if there was anything else, and like usual, her thoughts went to people that are helping us all the time, and she said specifically to you guys. She said to tell you guys how thankful we are that you guys have been our friends through this. Several of you guys as people, classes, groups, whatever, have gone above and beyond to help us and our kiddos. We know that people say things like this tritely, but honestly, we probably could not have done this without you guys. There's been clue, clothes, clues, clothes, toys, food, free babysitting. I love the free babysitting, by the way. That's always a good gift for a new parent. You guys are letting one of my kids come in the last minute and play upwards. Now, he's been wanting to play basketball forever. He's been to five foster homes. We're his fifth foster home in like six months, and uh, he never could stay at a school long enough to get on a team. You guys let him come in here and play upwards, which is awesome. We don't even go to church here anymore, and you guys are just loving people who want to help, and it really helped us. So thank you guys. Now on to the next 14 pages where I talk about me. And then I put in here Paul's for nervous laughter. And you guys didn't disappoint. You guys were here for me. I appreciate it. Jeff asked me to discuss why we felt called into foster care, and I have to be honest, I then wrote a 10-minute talk on why you should all be foster parents. And honestly, that's just not right. This is a really tough, messy, life-changing, and marriage and family-altering ministry. And even if you're called to do this, you will find yourself angry, crying, embarrassed, and brokenhearted at times. So I hope I never try to talk someone into this. You have to be called to do this or you would never make it. So let me tell you about the first kid I ever adopted. Her name is Tiffany. She's now 30 years old. She's the mother of my beautiful little grandbaby named Addison Grace, or Addie. Tiffany came to me as an angry and a little rough child. I was a youth minister at the time. She was invited to the group by a regular intender. And for some reason, Tiffany and I hit it off. I don't know if she needed a strong male to affirm her or if I needed a kid to take my ministry seriously and just let me love them, but whatever it was, we clicked. I asked Tiffany the other day, and I said, hey, what was it? And she said it was just a God thing. So I raised her right, I guess. Tiff and her sister Brittany started coming over to the house after school more and more often. Pretty soon I would pick them up on Sunday morning to go to church, and then I'd keep them all week until Saturday. Uh, they would go stay with their family on Saturday, and then I'd pick them up Sunday morning, and we'd start all over again. We lived like this all the way through high school. I took her off to college. I moved her back to Memphis when she went for her doctorate. She asked me to walk her down the aisle when she got married. Somewhere during this time, I just said, hey, it's kind of weird always explaining to people what I am to you when they ask, what do you want me to say? And she said, just tell them you're my dad. So when I asked Tiffany about this part, she said to tell you. Somehow I arrived at church and an invite from a friend turned into family. So as an inside, always invite people to church. It gave me a daughter and it gave me a love for kiddos that made, a, made me a foster parent eventually. I'm sorry. From that relationship on, I've wanted to be able to affect the lives of young people. Unfortunately, or fortunately in my case, I went through a divorce. Can't tell my ex-wife I said fortunately. So ministry, or at least Baptist ministry, is not an option for me anymore. So God, who never throws us away, even when we mess up, just changed my calling to teaching. And now he's opened up so many opportunities for me. I teach school kids to read with a rise to read, work with inner city kids at the ICOC with Ronnie Tullis. I teach a Bible study to some kids that I got to know at this very church one night a week. And now we just added foster care to our list of opportunities. But no ministry I've ever been involved in has allowed me to put more of myself or my life into someone that needed help more than foster care. Be warned again, it isn't for everyone. See my timer's over here, the screen locked on me. 
We literally do not get much of the positives. I can't put pictures up on Facebook of my kids. I literally have had some of the cutest kids you will ever see, and they do some of the funniest stuff, and I can't tell you guys about it. I can't put up school pictures, cute outfits, smiles, before and after pics, or anything like that. Amy and I have sat on the end of our bed at 2 o'clock in the morning crying and saying we can't do this anymore. And we can't call you and explain it because we're not allowed to give out details. We can't put up Facebook statuses asking for prayer for the same reason. It's weird. You put me in a room of four-year-olds, and after the class is over, they all like Mr. J, and they want to play, and they want to give me high fives in the hall. So I thought this would be so easy, guys. But guys, these kids are not normal. They didn't get raised the way we would raise kids. They aren't just regular kids that just need love. We deal with kids that have a definition of normal that is colored by what they grew up with. If you're four and you've been living in a car for the last year, your definition of normal doesn't match mine. If you're eight and you live in half of a burned out trailer with no food, electricity, or running water, and you have stories that start with one time I went to school, you have a different normal. And I've had both of those kids in my house. I'm trying to help with violence and cussing and bedwetting. I have to have you for weeks or months before I can get to the fact that you're eight years old and you can't read. You don't even know your colors yet. I can love you, I can play, I can show you that you're wanted, which is a huge part of this ministry, but I also need to get you functioning like a normal eight-year-old. Imagine every time you go to Walmart, you have to tell your child that this time they really don't need to steal anything. We've had to go through that quite a bit. Going into your child's room and they've hoarded all the little Debbies to make sure that they have food. And if I take food away from them as a punishment, they have a stockpile. That's one of the kids was raised that if they got in trouble, their mom took their food away. And so they stockpiled and hid food in their room. Or you bring your kids over to a friend's house and you're on pins and needles waiting for the inevitable meltdown or scream or punch fest to start up and you're praying that they don't break anything that you can't pay for. Normal just isn't what we deal with anymore. It's so off that sometimes Amy and I just shake our heads and laugh and we go, well, that didn't go like we expected. And we think we're called to do this. I can't imagine trying to do this if I wasn't called. I have snapped before and yelled at an eight-year-old, and that's with Jesus in my heart. I can't imagine trying to do this without him. But I've seen cigarette burns and I've seen smiles in the same child. I've seen broken bones and laughs in the same child. I've seen anger and love in the same child. And I've seen a lot of kids come in not trusting men and leave calling me dad. So I'm supposed to tell you why. A year ago, I would have said that I had three kids, and the oldest was a girl named Tiffany. Now I get to put up pictures like this. And if you can see real closely, there's marks for 15 different kiddos that have come through my house and been affected for better or for worse by Amy and I. If you were called by God to do this, a better question is why not, and why not now? Thank you, guys. Minute 30 left. One of the boys that Jay and Amy have right now, they're playing on one of our basketball teams, and he did win, hit the game-winning shot yesterday. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was one of those moments that you will never forget. He hurled up this three-pointer like it was nothing, and swish. It was great. It was, a, it was definitely a God moment. Um, I asked him to come and share that because I wanted us to, to see in real life a way that we can do this. Now, I know that not everybody can do everything, um, but here's, here's my fear. You know, do you want to know what I believe is the biggest opponent, opponent to us as the church doing what we're called to do? I don't think it's a political party. I don't think it's laws. I don't think it's the Supreme Court. 
don't think it's lobbyists in Washington. I think it's just apathy. I think it's just an unwillingness to get uncomfortable and do something. Let me just give you an example. And this is a really simple example and something small, but I think it points to a bigger problem. Uh, you turn on your TV and you're flipping through the channels, and how many of you have ever seen those Feed the Children commercials come up? You know what I'm talking about? What do you do when those commercials come on? Change the channel. You, you feel guilty. You feel bad. You feel hurt for these kids, but... But we've seen so many of them and we become overwhelmed by them that what do we immediately want to do? We want to look away. We want to change the channel. We want to do something to get away from it. Now, now, now I'm not trying to say that we should call every one of those organizations that gives money because I don't know that all of them are worth our investment. But I think it points to a, an issue in our hearts and that is that many times we don't do what God's called us to do because we're simply... apathetic to it, that we want to look away, and we, and we think in our minds, out of sight, out of mind. If I can just get away from this and get back to my normal life, let me get back to my football game or whatever, then I can, then I can get that off my brain and I can go back to normal. We see the same thing driving down the road. We see homeless men and women on the side of the road, and we've trained ourselves to look the other direction. We've trained ourselves to make excuses as to why we should not do something in those situations. Why? Because we many times don't want to get uncomfortable. I'm afraid that's why it's so easy for us to allow the pro-life issue to only be about abortion. Because it's easy, it's not, it doesn't inconvenience us to walk into a voting booth and cast a vote for a pro-life candidate. Because then we can go back home and go back to our normal routine. But we've been called to do much more than vote. Now we must vote because we need godly men and women in office who are going to enact laws that move us in the right in a godly direction. Now, don't get me wrong, but we've been called to take ownership, to do something about the problems that we see, not simply to look at them, but to actually do something. And, and, when, we, and when we take ownership of the issues, when we sacrifice to care for the poor, when we step in and serve as foster parents... When we, when we give of our own means to help the widow, when we consider helping the single mom who chose not to have an abortion and is now struggling to care for the child that they don't have any money, or when we care for the woman who had an abortion and feels brokenhearted over what, what, what's taken place, then guess what happens? It begins to become real. It begins to affect our wallets. It begins to affect our time, our leisure, and our comfort. But isn't that where God has called us to be? Not comfortable people, but compassionate people who are willing to lay our comfort aside for the sake of another because that's what our Savior did. You know, when we think about it, American Christians are the wealthiest Christians to ever live. When you consider the history of the church, never has the church had so much money at her disposal. And maybe, just maybe, God gave us those things. Not so that we could have nicer houses and nicer cars and vacation homes and all these great and wonderful things that aren't bad in and of themselves. But maybe God gave us those things for such a time as this. 
so that we could do something to change the life of an individual for God's kingdom. God has called us to action. Now, just like Jay said, everyone can't do everything. But everyone is called to do something. I want to go back to Matthew 25, and I just want to read verse 35 through 40 one more time. And then we're going to be done. Jesus said these words. He said, I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then down in verse 40, the king said, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And so I'll close with this question. What are we doing to help the hurting? Because when we help the hurting, in actuality, we're not only ministering to that person, but the Bible says here, we're doing it as unto the Lord. Would you pray with me? God, we live in a hurting world. Sin has had its effects. It has ravaged our country and our world. And we look around and we see so much pain. We see so much suffering. We see so much poverty, hunger, and hurt. And it can be easy to look at those things and to think, I'm just one person. How can I do anything? How can I make any difference? But Father, I pray that your word would remind us today that if we make, all we have to do is to make a difference in one soul at a time. That if we're faithful to the calling that you've placed on our lives and faithful to your word, it's all that matters. Father, I pray that we would hear these verses, that we would hear these words, and we would begin to ask ourselves, have we become too comfortable? Have we become too wrapped up in our own lives and our own struggles that we've forgotten to see that you've called us to serve the world with compassion? And so, Father, I'm praying for us as a church, as a group, as a body, as a whole, that we would take up the call that you have put on our lives to minister to the hurting. And I pray for us as individuals that each of us would ask, what have, what have you called me to do, Lord? How have you called me to serve the hurting of this world? And that we would give ourselves wholeheartedly to that calling. Not so that we can be saved, but because we have been saved. Because our hearts have been changed. Because our Savior left the comfort of heaven, we're willing to lay down uh, the comforts of this earth knowing that something greater is coming. And Father, I do pray for any individual in this room who may be hurting today for whatever the reason. God, I pray that they would be comforted. I pray that their hearts would be lifted up. And I pray for those today who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I pray that today would be the day that they would understand the love of Christ gift that he gave the sacrifice that he made on the cross and I pray that they would come 
and want to begin a relationship with him and to receive eternal life. And it's in Christ's name we do pray these things. Amen. Would you stand as we sing?